And uh, I've given you guys three challenges. And I hope that you take this, these challenges on. If, you're, if you didn't, weren't here last week, it's okay. You can still jump on these, these uh, challenges. Okay, the first challenge I'm, I'm challenging all of us to do is memorize one verse a week. And so each week I'm giving you a verse. I've been doing this for a long time, but especially during this series, I, I'm really emphasizing it, that we start to build into the habit of our life the, the meditation and the memorization of God's Word because of the benefits to us. What the Bible says about it when we do it is it brings us life and prosperity. For instance, this week's uh, verse, Joshua 1.8. And some of you have been memorizing that. How many of you have been memorizing that this week? There it is. Okay, let's say it out loud. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you're careful to do, am I saying it right? Everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. This is just one verse of showing you uh, why we're doing what we're doing because the Bible says when you uh, pay attention to God's word, when you speak it, when you think it, when you do it, and you begin to align your life with it, it causes you to have prosperity and success. And the key is getting to the doing part, though. Remember, last week, if you're here, um, we talked about the wise man and foolish man, and the idea is they both heard, they both saw the verse of the week, they both heard it. They could have even both memorized it, but the difference is so that. It's the so that. You do all that so that you're actually living it out because once you live it out, you're unlocking all the blessings in, you know, in favor of God. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So the goal is for us to, to study, to learn, to do, to put it into practice. Not because you have to do something to please God, because you want to be alive and you want to be full of joy and peace and health and prosperity, okay? Um, last week, we had over 100 people join our Word team. That's awesome. So you're not alone in doing this. You got that slide with that number. If you weren't here and you got a smartphone and you want to join the team, you just text the word word to that number, 810-242-0199, and immediately you'll get um, a welcome, and you can fill out a survey if you want to uh, on this series. And then on Monday morning each week, you'll get our verse of the week sent to you so that it's on your phone and you can do it. Um, so here's this week's verse. It's an easier one, but it's just as powerful. Um, no, it's not Colossians. Yeah, it's, is it Colossians? Colossians 3.16. And it says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, let's say that together. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I want you to meditate on it. Don't just memorize it. You can memorize that in 30 seconds. Um, it's not that hard. But then you start to Think it through. Meditate on it. What does that mean? And is that happening in your life? Are you just thinking about scriptures or is it dwelling in you? I mean, is it stuck to your bones? You know, is it written on your heart? Is it overflowing? Is it richly or is it poverty? You know, like get the word in your heart because that's how it begins to get to your feet and your hands, right? When it's in your heart, it, it gets done in your life. And so, the Bible says, let it dwell in you richly. Let it tabernacle in you. Let it live inside of you. Put a welcome mat on your heart for the word of God. Welcome, entertain it, and, and get it into you, okay? You will be blessed because of it. All right, second challenge uh, that I have for you is to, this is a big one, is to daily devote yourself to reading the Bible. 
This may be a new thing for you, and you may have, you may have read the Bible here and there a little bit, but what I'm challenging you to do is make a life pattern for your own sake of reading the Bible every day. Now, if you miss a day, don't give up and say, oh, I blew it, oh, no, I can't go to church anymore. And I'm, you know, don't do that. Don't, don't even think about that. That's not, the, that's not the deal. The deal is let's establish a new, a new routine. Okay? If, you missed, if you went to bed once as a seven-year-old and didn't brush your teeth, you didn't just stop brushing your teeth the rest of your life because it's a good thing to brush your teeth. You know, but this is going to become even more pleasurable to you than brushing your teeth, though. Okay? Um, and, uh, and so what I'm trying to do is I want to challenge you to read the Bible every day. And if you're new, just start with something small. If you've been doing this for a long time, then find a great uh, motivating plan for yourself that, you, that you're ready for, okay? So out in the uh, Welcome Center there, we have three different plans that you can pick if you want to just take something home today. We have a 30-day 30 reading, 30 reading plan for new Christians. We have one that would be reading the whole New Testament through this year, which would take you about 10 minutes a day. And then there's one reading the whole Bible through this year, and that would take you about probably 25, 20 to 30 minutes, depending on how fast of a reader you are, a day, Okay? If you want to read the whole Bible in a year, you've got to read about three, three and a half chapters a day. But reading the New Testament through in a year, you need to read about one chapter a day, okay? Just to give you an idea. Um, but I was also talking with the worship team, and they're kind of doing their own little thing. They got a plan, and they all kind of put on the same plan, and then they're like interacting with each other on their plan. And uh, if you have smartphone, and if you've ever downloaded the app Version, the Bible, Version Bible, that has all kinds of different uh, plans on it, and they, they've got really cool-looking plans on there. And then they will give you a daily, like, reminder, you know, on that. So there's all kinds of apps out there. But find a plan because the plan uh, will help you more likely do it than just not planning on it. You know what I mean? So find a plan that works for you. The third challenge I have for you is just come to church and listen to these messages. And if you miss a, a Sunday then listen to it online. Just commit yourself to learning all the tools. Get all the tools you can on how to receive and grow in the Word. It's very important because this is the greatest single habit you can establish in your life is getting the Word of God into your heart every day. This is the greatest thing that you could do every single day because of the benefits of health, prosperity, uh, wisdom, freedom, all of the things that you need are right here. God has given us his word for us and for our benefit. Okay? There's the challenges for you. Hey, I want to shake things up. I was at the last trivia night a couple weekends ago, and uh, I would say I left feeling pretty dumb. So I wanted to encourage myself by giving you a trivia quiz of the Bible because I know the answers to this one. Let's see how we do. It's just for fun. And we could do this as a group, okay? So we all come out of this feeling smart. All right. First question on our Bible quiz. Let's just get a little bit of a, uh, a scope here of the Bible. True or false? The Bible is the most read book in history. True. Correct. Number two. What are the first ten words in your English Bible? The first sentence in the Bible. What does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. By the way, I think that is the greatest sentence in the Bible. When you study it in Hebrew, it is amazing what it says. 
And uh, anyway, we're going to look at that next week. I'm going to show you the first word in the Bible in Hebrew, break it down for you. You need to be here. It's going to be awesome. All right, third question, true or false? The Bible is the best-selling book in history. True. Do you know every year 100 million copies of the Bible currently are being sold? Isn't that awesome? That's pretty cool. Um, my stats say that there have been over 5 billion copies of the Bible made. And I was telling the, the, the first service that my very first ever missions trip was to a place called uh, um, World Missionary Press in New Paris, Indiana. And it's near Goshen, I think. It's either in, it's real near Goshen. And I was 17 years old, and a group of us, teenagers, and our youth pastor, and a couple of our other adults. And of all people, there's a few people in the first service that were on that trip. And this trip was 20... A long time ago, like 30 years ago, 31 years, 32 years ago, um, and we went to this place, and what they were doing was they were printing scripture booklets in like over 100 different languages in the world, and we spent our whole spring break sitting around this giant, slowly rotating, what we called a collating table, and Denise, your sister was on that trip. Yeah, and I was, she was sitting right there at first service, and like, she's like, oh, yeah, I was there. And neither one of us could remember it, and then the allergies are back there like, World Missionary Press. We're like, oh, yeah. And we spent hours, eight hours a day sitting at this table, taking the next page, the next page, the next page, the next page, and the table would go all the way around. There's like 30 pages, and then we would staple it and put it on the pile. And we were making scripture booklets uh, for the whole spring break. But it was so inspiring to me because we were hearing the stories of people in other countries that didn't have scriptures in their languages. And this, this group was working with other groups that were still translating the Bible into other languages to get people the good news. And it was so awesome to do that as a young person. Then my next year, I went to China, and that was my first foreign missions trip. My dad was there, a few of us from our church were there, and we smuggled Bibles into that country. And we heard stories after stories of people who were praying just to get a page of the Bible. And if they got a page of the Bible, they would memorize it. Then they would pass it on until that page just got worn out because it was the underground church at that time. And it was illegal, you know, to have a Bible in China. In fact, today, um, you could be imprisoned or killed if you were found with a Bible in North Korea. To, today, right now. Uh, there are several countries where the Gideons, for example, are not even allowed to operate in different countries in the world. All right, anyway, the next question, number four, how many different books are in the entire Bible? 66, right, 66 different books, good job. Number five, true or false, the Bible is translated in more than 500 languages. What do you think? True, 532, and there's 2,883 partial translations. This is amazing. This has been really a movement of believers since the printing press. For the last, you know, five, six hundred years, it has been the goal of many believers to get the Word of God translated into every language on the earth because of the importance of the, the, the truth that sets people free. Isn't that inspiring? Um, Wycliffe was, was, spent his life um, doing that. Some of you have heard of Wycliffe Bible translators. Number six, what is the longest book in the Bible? The Psalms, right. It's got 150 different chapters to the book of Psalms. In fact, inside the Psalms, 
you also will find the, the longest or biggest chapter in the Bible. Does anybody know what that is? Psalm 119 has 176 verses. So typically, if you kind of shoot for the middle of your Bible and crack it open, you'll come really close to hitting the Psalms if you don't hit the Psalms because uh, the middle chapter of the Bible is Psalm 118. Uh, anyway, now the next question. True or false, the Bible is the most shoplifted book in history. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but they, they repent after they get it. So, you know, they start to read it. I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But, yeah, it's true. It's just one of those odd facts. Okay, number eight. What are the two primary languages that the Bible was originally written in? Yeah, great. Greek and Hebrew. Now, there is a third language that there's just little portions of it in the Old Testament, and it's uh, Aramaic, just a couple of Aramaic uh, portions in there. But mostly the Old Testament mostly is Hebrew, and the New Testament was originally written in Greek, okay? All right, um, true or false, this verse is in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. No, it's not in the Bible. You'd be surprised at how many people think that is in the Bible. It's not. Uh, but God helps us, uh, but he helps those. I would say it's not a verse, but you know, we're seeking him, right, putting him first. But that's not a verse in the Bible. Okay, and the last one is, what is the last word of the Bible. Amen. So be it. So be it. All right, you guys did good. Give yourselves a hand. Nice job. Um, I want to talk about uh, the Bible today and ask, answer this question. Why can I trust the Bible? And as I did this in the first service, uh, I have seven points I, I was hoping to make. I only did two. I only got to two. So I, I'm like, the guys were wheeling out the white bar said, put it back. I'm not even going to get there. There's no way. So we're just going to get the first two points. Um, uh, I don't want to skip over this because in our society, how many of you just want someone to tell you the truth? Are you tired of this crazy idea called fake news? I mean, it's just crazy. I'm just going crazy. Uh, the last couple of years, I don't, it's just, I'm like, who can I believe? I'm not sure if I can believe, you know, what the news is saying. I'm not sure what you can believe on the internet. And it's driving me crazy. I was watching the State of the Union this week, and then you hear all the politicians, and then, you know, and then you catch people in kind of like these half-truth things, and that's just driving me crazy. But you know what's going on, though, is a lot of people have doubted and have more, more than any other time in history has doubted the authenticity of this book. And so I want to spend the next two weeks just letting you know and debunking the cultural impression of, of the Bible, that this is, and you can be absolutely 100% sure, this is the Word of God. Amen. I want to spend some time just showing you some, some examples and, and, and showing you why you can have absolute trust in this. Why? Because last week, I'm asking you to build your life on this book. In fact, Jesus said to build your life on this book. He said if you build your life on this book, if you put this into practice in your life, verse by verse, and principle by principle, that you are wise and the storms of life will not take you out. You will remain, you'll be strong because you built your life on a sure foundation. I'm telling you what, this is a sure foundation. Every verse in this Bible is from God. Although there are 40 different authors and there's 66 different books, 
God did not write the book uh, through human brains. He wrote it through his spirit moving through human beings. But they were not uh, humans coming up with these good ideas. It wasn't, even though it says the book of Matthew, and Matthew was the author of Matthew, I'm telling you, he wasn't the author of Matthew. He was the, the avenue of Matthew, but it was the Spirit of God telling Matthew, write this down. That's what the Bible says of itself, that this is written by God. It is God-breathed, okay? So we're going to spend a couple weeks talking about this because if, if, I, if, if this isn't the Word of God, then you shouldn't build your, your life on this. If this is just another book, if this is just some good ideas. But if this is the Word of God, and it is, and if it is perfect, and it is, and if it's flawless, and it's eternal, and it's the truth that will set you free and bring you life and prosperity and success, then you better be building your life on this thing because it's right in front of you. It's right here. And God wants you to be alive and filled with his, his life in you. And so 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says of itself, it says of the Bible, that all scriptures God breathed. In Greek, this word is theonoustos. And the noustos is that silent P. So it's a P-N-U-E-S-T-O-S. So all the guys in the, in the house that have pneumatic nailers, we know what that P-N thing stands for. It stands for air, right? So theo stands for God, and noustos means breathed or air. So this right here is God breathed. That's a good translation to say it's God breathed. One of the words that we usually use and some translations use is it's inspired. But sometimes people don't know what that word means. They think, oh, it's, it's just, it's exciting or it's got some, you know, yeah, like I want to inspire somebody so I want to get them excited and all that. No, no, no. What it means is it is literally God himself speaking. When you open this book, this is not a book to just be read. This is a book for you to speak. God has spoken it to be recorded so that you could speak it. And when you speak it, when you speak, the breath that you use is God's breath. It is God's breath. Your mom did not give you that breath. The doctor did not give you that breath, even though he probably helped you get it first, you know, or whatever, clean you out, you know. It didn't come from him. Nobody gave you that breath. God gave you that breath. The breath came from God. The Bible says in Genesis, when God breathed into man, man became a living being. He formed us like clay. He created the structure. He put all the parts together. But then he went down mouth to mouth, and the Bible says he breathed into us the breath of God. When, when I was there for my five kids get, getting born, I was there in that room each time, and it was, it was, a, it was the moment when they breathed and it was a miracle, right? Because now they're breathing, and it was the breath from God. And you're all thankful for that because if you've been in that birthing room and there's a, like a one, two, three, four, five-second gap, you see the baby out, and you're just waiting. You're like, come on, baby, come on. Come on, breath, come on. And that can be a long time. Three seconds is all. Five seconds. Man, you're like, nobody can do anything. You just hope that baby starts breathing, and all of a sudden you hear the... <laughs> whatever and you're like "Woo, yeah it's on now thank you lord thank you lord children are a blessing from the lord uh which by the way congratulations to uh the hickeys for their daughter being the blueberry queen so congratulations to alexa that's awesome and um 
But the, the children, our children are a blessing from God, and you can't give breath to some, somebody. God gives that breath. And when you take God's breath and you repeat, you repeat what God has already said. That is the power formula for your life to see things changed. Okay, so this is God-breathed. Um, I just want you to, to know it's powerful. The Bible says of itself that it's active and it's living and it's powerful and it can transform your life. It can save you. It can fill you with peace. All of the benefits that I'm talking about come from us believing that this really is the Word of God and trusting in the Word of God and speaking the Word of God. Amen? All right, so I'm so encouraged that we had so many people already join the challenge to memorize these verses. Also, I just want to say, since I'm thinking about it, I want to welcome all of our new family members. Last Sunday, we had 61 people join the Lamb of God Fellowship, so that was really exciting to have so many of you. Um, if, hey, if you were here last week and, and you became part of our family, would you just stand up real quick? We just want to welcome you into our family. Here's some of our new family members making that commitment last week. Awesome. Welcome. All right, you guys can have a seat. It's so cool. They, they, uh, uh, our family's getting bigger all the time. So we have 201 of us now uh, you know, on our membership that, that is committed to a life following after Christ committed to loving one another, committed to prioritizing God's word and giving to his kingdom and, and, um, and serving one another. This is awesome. God's doing a great thing here, and I'm just really proud of this family. Uh, so I want to talk about two things because I was going to talk about seven. So now we're down to two, okay? I'm going to talk about two things of why you can trust in the word of God. Why is this book reliable? How, can, how do I know that this is from God and not just from people? How did, how did God work this whole thing out? There's 40 different authors, 66 different books. It was written over the course of 1,600 years. How do I know this is God and not people? Well, we're going to go through seven, seven things in the next two weeks. The first one is this. The Bible is historically accurate. This is very important because the Bible has been under attack before. It's still under attack today. It's been under attack by its claims, uh, by its history, by its science, by all kinds of different things, and I just want to go right through all of this together and just make sure that we know what we believe and what the Bible says and what the Bible doesn't say. And so, first of all, it is historically accurate. How many of you are glad this morning when you woke up, you didn't find yourself floating on the ceiling? <laughs> because God created all the laws of physics. He created the laws of thermodynamics. He created the laws of biology. He created the law of gravity. And this morning, thank God, the law of gravity is still working. Otherwise, I would have had to find my car somewhere up there in the sky. Okay? Or you would have had to figure out how to get yours down from the roof of your garage. I mean, it's a, you know, there is no randomness to our creation. It is, it is um, in, incredibly articulate from a, a, the, the most intelligent intelligence we could ever imagine of just looking at any part of your body and those who are in science, those who are in biology, those who are studying our bodies, you know, I, I, when I talk with them, they're, they're of the same, uh, you know, mindset. They just can go on and on and on just about your eyeball or just about any part in your body, how intricate it is and how amazing the creation is that God has given to us. And so God created all these things. Anyway, we're talking about history. So how many of you like history? Anybody like history? I love history. Well, I'm going to talk about some people in history and a few different interesting things. First of all, the Bible is not written as a history book, but it has a lot of history. And I'll tell you this, the Bible does not have any bad history. I'm not saying bad things didn't happen. I'm saying it's not inaccurate. 
It's not inaccurate at all about any of its history. It doesn't have any bad science in this book. Although it's been criticized uh, and there's been a big battle about science in the Bible, the Bible has never been proven scientifically inaccurate or wrong. In fact, just the opposite. We are catching up, science is catching up to what God has already said is true. It's amazing. So let's talk about history. This is not just doctrinally correct. It's not just theologically correct. It's not just correct in its ethics and, or, and morals. It's also correct in its account of the history that's recorded in it. So Hebrews 6.18 says it is impossible for God to lie because God is truth. Everybody believe that? So God is, if this book is written by God, then it would be impossible for God to lie or to deceive us. He wouldn't do that. That's not his character. So if we can find lies in this Bible or we can find inaccuracies in this Bible that are wrong, then we would have to question, did God really write this? How could God write this and be wrong? Well, we can't find anything wrong because God did write this Bible. This is one of the biggest proofs of the authenticity that God is the author because man would screw this thing up. And it's not screwed up at all. So let's go through some of that stuff. First of all, Psalm 33, verse 4 says, The word of the Lord is right. Everybody say right. And true. Say true. The word of the Lord is right and it's true. Proverbs 35 says, Every word of God is flawless, without error. Without error. The word of God is flawless. So how do historians validate or authenticate historical literature or accounts of history? How do historians say that's viable, that's reliable, we trust this information? The first test that they use is whether it's an eyewitness account, which means I saw it, I saw this happen, and now I'm writing it down. That's an eyewitness account. Or a second-hand account would be, I saw it, Dad, this is what I said, and then my dad writes that down. Or a third account, which would be, I saw it, I tell my dad, my dad tells my mom, my mom writes it down. And so the the closer to the eyewitness account, the more it's respected as real and authentic and reliable, right? Does that make sense? And some history is based on legends. Like, we heard this happen. Someone somewhere heard this happen a long time ago, and it kind of gets passed down the family line. And it's that, 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 uh, that game where you, you know, yeah, you, whatever that is. You know what I'm saying. And things kind of get embellished or change, and the fish grows over, over time, the size of the fish or whatever. And, you know, it becomes legends. Now, beyond any other ancient literature of human history, the Bible stands alone in its authenticity of eyewitness accounts. There is no other ancient literature that has as much eyewitness or secondhand accounts as the Bible. Let me tell you some of the examples. Moses, he was there when the sea was split, and he wrote it down. He's the author of that amazing moment. Think about it. It wasn't Charlton Heston. It was Moses, okay? And he was there. Joshua was there when the walls of Jericho came falling down, collapsing, and then he wrote it down in the book called Joshua, he was the first-hand account witness of what God did in there. The disciples, they saw Jesus. They lived with Jesus. They saw him die on that cross, and they saw him raised from the dead, and they interacted with him. Thomas was there. He wasn't there at first. Jesus appeared to some of his disciples. Then Thomas 
sees him, and he's like, I'm not going to believe unless I see him. And all of a sudden, boom, Jesus is there, and, and, and Thomas falls to the floor. And he's like, oh, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, hey, Thomas, I'll tell you what, blessed are you because you see me, but blessed are those who do not see me or haven't seen me or will not see me, yet still believe. But Thomas saw him. Matthew saw him. Mark saw him. John saw him. And Peter saw him. And they wrote about it. Matthew wrote his account of the gospel. John wrote his account in the gospel. Luke interviewed all of the apostles. He was a doctor and a historian. He interviewed all of them, and then he wrote an account, the book of, of Luke. Mark was the, the protege of Peter, and Peter told him all of these stories, and Mark wrote it all down. So that was kind of a second-hand account for Mark from Peter himself. And so we see that these people, they were there. And, and the authenticity of the eyewitness accounts is bar none compared to all ancient literature. The Bible has the, the highest reliability in this category that's possible. The second test, history, is the care that's given to the preservation of the literature. Um, and so this is an amazing thing, too. Again, there's never been any more care given to any other documents in history like the Jewish people have cared for the Scriptures, the ancient Scriptures. They have meticulously copied the Scriptures with many um, rules and, and structure to make sure that they would be accurate. I'm going to just give you a couple ideas of this. The, the person who would do this would be called a scribe. And his job was to copy the Torah onto other parchments. And uh, every time he came to, for instance, the word uh, of God, uh, the name for God, he would have to stop, he'd have to go take a mikvah and clean off and come back and write the name of God. Every time they came to the name of God, they had so much respect for the name of God. But this is what they would do. They would copy uh, on parchments, letter by letter, not word for word. If I just was writing quickly and doing word for word, I might spell a word incorrectly. They would not do it word by word. They would go letter by letter. So if I was trying to spell, you know, copying the word, uh, whatever, uh, encyclopedia or something, you know, I would, I would not just write, okay, encyclopedia. I wouldn't do it. I would go E, whatever their E is, right? N, N. They were disciplined to do it letter by letter so as not to make any mistakes. And then they knew how many letters in Hebrew were in each book. So Genesis, the book of Genesis, for instance, I don't know the number. I'll just throw a number out there. They knew there was like 2,318 letters in the whole book. They knew those numbers. And so when they would get done with that, they would count all the letters. And if it wasn't exactly the right number, they, they threw it away. They threw the whole thing away. Um, they knew how many letters were in the whole Torah and in the whole Old Testament. When a, a final copy was done, they, they would go to the middle letter of the document, which they knew what, what that was. They would count backwards and have a number, and they would count forwards and have a number, and if those numbers weren't exactly right, they threw the whole thing away. They had everything in, 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 in rows, in columns. They had everything counted, and this was how meticulous they were. Now, up until uh, not too long ago, the oldest scriptural uh, remnants that we had available was from the, the year 895. So a long time ago, um, 1,100 years ago. However, there was what I consider a discovery of the century, of the 20th century, happened in 1947. At least for Christians, this was a discovery of the century by far. 
1947, a young shepherd boy uh, uh, was exploring the caves just west of the Dead Sea, and he discovered a huge collection of ancient scrolls in Hebrew and Greek, and they call it the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, this is, this is common knowledge. This is anything I'm, you know, this is, this is amazing. So as they began to study these, and, and for many years, these things were under lock. They wouldn't even spread what was in them. It was top secret. And, but they finally began to study them and release information on them. And what they have found is over 25% of your Old Testament, they found over 25% of the content of your Old Testament. So it was an amazing discovery. They found parts of scrolls from every book in the Old Testament except the book of Esther. So there's, there's like a ton of books in, in the Old Testament. Every one of them had parts in this cave. It's really cool. And the book of Isaiah, for instance, they had 19 different copies of just the book of Isaiah. It was the favorite, favorite book to study in that culture in that time with this group. 19 copies of the book of Isaiah. So what they did, if you can imagine, these are scrolls. You can't put the whole book of Isaiah on one scroll. There's 66 chapters, I think. So they would have scrolls. Maybe this scroll would have the first four chapters on it or something. And, you know, so they got all these scrolls. So they would collect all these. They studied them all. They merged these 19 together and almost found, between those 19 copies, almost the whole, uh, the whole book of Isaiah, almost all of it. And this was really exciting because they, they dated that these were written between 150 A.D., and go back further, 150 B.C. So we just gained 1,000 years on authenticating the Scriptures. This is amazing. The, the, we just, you know, from 895 A.D. to now 150 B.C. is when some of these scrolls were written. So when they started to study these and line them up with modern-day, uh, you know, text, they found that we are still over a 95% perfection of exactly what those scriptures have been saying. Can you believe that? Over 2,000 years, we're still 95% accurate. And, and most of the 5% of inaccuracy was a couple of letters, uh, mis- a couple of words misspelled, and a couple of names in particular that were, mis- that were, spelling, were spelling different along the way. And, that, and when you, when you kind of take those spelling mistakes into consideration, 99.5% accurate. This is unbelievable for his, historians. This is like nothing compares to this. Nothing compares to this. This is an amazing thing. And so what you are reading is the same text that Jesus was reading and studying when he was on this earth. It is the word of God. Pretty exciting because I didn't share this with the first service, but Jesus authenticated the word of God. We'll talk about that next week because he taught this word. He trusted this word, and I trust Jesus. How about you? And your copy is 99.5% as accurate as Jesus' copy. And if Jesus said this is the word of God, then I believe it's the word of God. Wow, this is awesome. You can build your life on this book, okay? Now, that's just test number two. Test number three is archaeology. Now, we know today, and I was in Israel in 2013. It was, it was a dream come true for me to be able to go there. i got to talk a little faster. <laughs> so when I was there, I saw Mount Carmel, Bethlehem. Uh, I saw the Pool of Siloam, uh, Herod's Temple, the, the Western Wall that's still there, the Mount, uh, the, the, the Temple Mount. 
I saw the Sea of Galilee, Mount Tabor, Mount Hermon, uh, the Mediterranean Sea, Nazareth, the Dead Sea, Masada, the Valley of Elah where David defeated Goliath. I was there. I saw these places. These places are in the Bible. You can see them today. There is 100% accuracy to all of the, the places uh, that were described in the Bible. And the places that they couldn't find, they've been finding. There's places in this past century that they found that they thought they would never find again. And they found them. They found them through archaeology. Capernaum was one of them. They didn't even discover that until the late 1800s. They thought it was wiped off. First of all, some people said it doesn't exist. Other, other people just say, well, we don't know where it is. Well, they found it. And discoveries have been going on and on and on. Not too long ago, I think it was within the last 50 years, they found a stone at Caesarea with an inscription, and the name on the stone was Pontius Pilate. And so it's called, you can go online today, look it up. It's called the Pontius Pilate Stone. It has his name carved in there because he used to vacation at Caesarea. And, uh, and it authentic, everything in history, like I said, history is catching up to the Bible. Uh, for a long time, uh, people didn't believe that there was a group called the Hittites. In the Bible, you can read about the Hittites. We defeated them. But there was no evidence anywhere. And because nobody else had written about them, scholars said the Bible's wrong. There's no group called the Hittites until, um, well, until early 1900s, a guy named, uh, where's his name at? Um, Hugo Winkler discovered 10,000 clay tablets, uh, which turned out to be in Turkey in the capital of the Hittites. So now everybody believes there's Hittites. But when, when they don't, don't see it, when they don't have the evidence, they discredit the Bible, say the Bible's wrong. The Bible's never been proved wrong. The, the, uh, our archaeology, our history is catching up to the reality of what God said is true. Let's go on to science, okay, real quick. The Bible is scientifically accurate. People who say that the Bible is not scientifically accurate either haven't studied the Bible or don't know science because it is scientifically accurate. I'm going to just give, give you a couple of interesting examples about this. By, by the way, there's a guy, great mathematician and astronomer. His name is Johannes Kepler. Anybody remember Johannes Kepler? Kepler? He also did a little astronomy, I think. Um, anyway, he said this. I love this quote. Science is simply thinking God's thoughts after him. We're catching up to what God already knows. You know, if God wrote this book, which he did, obviously he's not going to put bad science in here because he knows how science works, right? He knows the answers. He knows what's coming. He knows how things work. So he's not going to put in here something that's ridiculous. But what's interesting about this is that this Bible was written in cultures in real time where there were some really crazy scientific ideas. And if this was written by people, those ideas at some point would have filtered into the writing or into the context of what they said. So what's not in the Bible is just as important when you're studying history and science as what is in the Bible. What's not in the Bible is all these bad ideas that we have uh, survived how many of you know about bloodletting back in the Middle Ages? Bloodletting is when you purposely cut someone open and drain their blood. Why? Because that's going to make them feel better. No. But we did that for hundreds, I would say thousands of years. People believed that there was a sickness, you were sick, you need to get rid of the blood. It'll make you better. That's what people believed. In fact, uh, they say that George Washington, our president in 1700s, or early 1800s, I'm not sure when he died, that he died because of bloodletting. He had a sore throat, and the doctors of the day bloodletted him, 
and he died. That's how he died. A lot of people died because of this. Why? Because it's bad science. Bad, bad, bad science. It's dumb. But Leviticus 17.11, the Bible actually tells us this. The life of every creature is in its blood. This was written over 2,000 years ago, and for hundreds of years after this was written, we didn't understand that the life was in the blood. But the Bible, God said the life is in the blood. So what do we do today? We give people blood. Right? We've learned what God had said early on, we learned. You guys remember the bubonic plague? Uh, this was in the, what, 1300s? For a period of three or four years, 20 million people died in Europe. One-fourth of the population was wiped out immediately because of the contagiousness of this plague. What people didn't know back then, we didn't know anything about germs, contagion, how things are contagious, how touching or breathing or being, you know, getting in contact with those kind of diseases can spread. People didn't know that. So what would happen uh, if your wife is sick, you know, she's sick, you feel bad for her, but you're both laying in the same bed and you're using the same blankets and she's coughing and you're there and you get sick and you die. And that's what happened to Europe. Well, the Bible, God actually knows a little bit about germs, stuff like that, okay? And um, he said this in Leviticus 13.4, when a person was infected, they needed to go into isolation for seven days. And so what would happen is if they had a blemish, they had a sore, they had something that wasn't right, God said, take them out of the camp, away from people, and keep them there for seven days. And then the priests, they were supposed to look at it seven days later. And if it was healed, the person was welcomed back. If it wasn't, seven more days. How many of you think God's pretty smart? Listen, this is thousands of years before anybody understood germs and contagiousness. And God was already putting things in place to save his people, to love his people. Like, why has God got all these rules? He doesn't have rules. He has life. He has life. There may be some commands in the Bible that you've wondered. Why, is it, why would I have to do this? Why do I? Well, hang on. Because God's not dumb. And there's probably a reason for it. And it is your best interests to trust in God and his laws. I wish somebody would have read the Bible back then. Just saying. Uh, how many of you know that for thousands of years, people believed that the earth was flat? Evidently, there's still some people that believe that. <laughs> there is a website out there, the earth is flat, or some society or something. I don't know what they're doing. But anyway, yeah. But it's not flat. It is round. Okay. But for thousands of years, cultures didn't know that. And uh, during the time of the writing of the Bible, people believed it was flat. Now, here's what Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22 says. Evidently, none of these people knew how to read the Bible. Okay, anyway, God is enthroned above the sphere or the circle of the earth. This was written uh, in the Old Testament. This was back B.C., and for thousands of years after this was written that God said the earth is spherical, people believed that the earth was flat. Do you see what I'm saying? This wouldn't make sense if somebody was writing this. They wouldn't have read. They wouldn't have said. They would have said just the opposite. But God wouldn't lie. He just sneaks these little truths in there. I wonder what other truths are already in there right now that we're not seeing. That's kind of exciting to think about. And, uh, for instance, uh, the Greeks believed that the earth uh, was held up for many hundreds of years by a giant named Atlas. 
you know, Atlas holding up the globe. Uh, the Hindus believe that the earth sat on the back of giant elephants. When the elephants moved, that was called an earthquake. But the elephants stood on the back of a giant sea turtle, and the giant sea turtle stood on the back of a giant serpent, and the giant serpent swam through the cosmic sea. They believed that for thousands of years, during the time of the Old Testament being written. And the Egyptians believed that the earth was on five pillars. The earth was standing up on five pillars. And Moses, how many of you know Moses was raised as an Egyptian? He was adopted by Pharaoh's wife, and she raised him in all the ways of the Egyptians. So Moses was studied in the Egyptian schools. He was taught all the culture, all the language, all of the best. He was at the best schools, right, because he's Pharaoh's uh, wife's adopted, you know, child. And so Moses was the one who wrote Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Moses was taught the earth is on five pillars. But Moses didn't say anything about being on five pillars in the Bible, even though that's the culture of the day and that was the truth of the day. Uh, in fact, the Bible says just the opposite. The oldest known literature in human history is believed to be the book of Job, older than any other literature that, that we know of. That's, that's literature, you know, not carved on a cave wall or something. The book of Job. And in the book of Job, Verse 20, uh, chapter 26, verse 7, is this verse. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space, and he suspends the earth over five pillars? No, over nothing. That's what the verse says. Okay? Job 26, verse 7. He suspends the earth over nothing. There's no giant sea turtle. There's no five pillars. You know, there's no, no giant called Atlas that's holding up the earth. How many of you think God's pretty smart? Okay. This is amazing to me that cultures and, and years and years of information, although we believe something uh, to be true, the Bible was already saying something different. People weren't noticing it or didn't believe it, but the, the Bible is accurate in regards to all things. And uh, I just want to encourage you with this idea. I don't know about you, but I wonder how much the things that I learned in school are no longer valid. Are you, is anybody else frustrated about Pluto? Anybody else? I mean, that's not fair. Come on. Nine planets. Eight planets? Maybe nine? What is it? I don't know. They changed it a few years ago. Then last year they had this big, I don't know, I think it was a, a hoax because they were going to reinstate Pluto as a planet. I was kind of getting excited about that. But I think it was a hoax. Now it's called a dwarf planet. Now, Listen, there's things that we believe to be true thousands of years ago, which we know are ridiculous, okay, that are not true. There is nothing in here that we have found to be wrong for 2,600 years. Nothing. But our science keeps changing. Our knowledge keeps changing because we don't know it all, but God does. This is amazing. If this was written by humans, there'd be all kinds of crazy ideas and mistakes in here. It wasn't written by humans. It was written by the one who made you, who sees the end from the beginning, and, and who you can trust. And so today, as we close this service, and we'll pick, pick up next week and talk about a couple other points, five other points that will really just encourage you to build your life on the Word. I want to challenge you today to settle something deep inside of your heart. In our culture, there is a huge movement towards um, the idea that there is nothing that's absolute. 
that there is no absolute truth, there's no absolute God, uh, that you, there's, there's nothing that has real credence to it. I, but I'm telling you that the Word of God is true, and it's everlasting, and it's reliable, and it's perfect, and it will not pass away. It's been here for 2,600 years, and Jesus said himself that this will outlast the, the planet. His Word will be here, and not a single stroke not a single part of a single letter, like a little cross on a T or a dot of an I, will pass away until it is fulfilled. You can count on this. And I'm challenging you as a believer. There is no other option for you if you are a believer. But I'm challenging you to resolve in your heart, this is my authority. This is absolute truth. And I am going to build my life on this book. Because this is not a book. This is the Word of God to you so you could be alive and prosperous and successful. The truth in here does not change. It does not get old. It gets newer. We're just like, wow, God's, God's pretty smart. If we could just, you know, bring Copernicus up here, you know, raise him from the dead. Say, hey, Copernicus, what do you think now? Wow, God's pretty smart. <laughs> there was some guy back in, you know, a long time ago who thought he could count the stars so he counted 1,022 stars, and that was like 150 B.C. or something like that, or 150 A.D. So a guy comes along, Ptolemy, you guys remember Ptolemy, uh, around 300 A.D. He said, that guy's crazy. There's not 1,022 stars. There's 1,026. <laughs> I mean, over the course of 300 years, he improved the number from 1,022 to 1,026. And the Bible says that the stars are countless. You cannot count them. And we know that today. Nobody can count them. They're discovering new galaxies, let alone stars. And, uh, and the God already said that the stars are countless. And he would make the descendants of Abraham and of David as countless as the stars. It is a known scientific fact right now that the stars that we already know about outnumber the grains of sand on our planet. Think about that. That is an agreed-upon scientific fact right now that we cannot even count the stars in existence. They outnumber the grains of sand on our shores in this earth. That's an amazing thing. So God, hey, we're always catching up to God. So I'm telling you what, put your trust in the Lord. Put your trust in his word, okay? Let's stand together as we close our service and pray together. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to ask you to join me in kind of a, Declarative, the declaration prayer of, I don't, I don't know exactly what I'm going to say, but I'll tell you what I'm going to try to say, okay? Because you, you're, if you want to do this, I'm going to ask you to repeat after me, but I don't have it written out for you. I'm going to say something like, God, I believe in your word, that it's real, it's eternal, it's true, and I make a declaration today that I'm going to follow you and trust in you, and you are my final authority. Something like that, because I feel like we need to make that, that declaration within our heart, and we need to be strong in believing that God's word is what it says it is. It is God-breathed, and it is life to you, and it's health to your whole body. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray together. If you want to pray this prayer with me, repeat after me, okay? Say, say this with me. Say, God, I trust in you and you alone. And I believe in your word that this is from you for me. And I place my faith. And my trust in your word. May your spirit 
Write your word on my heart. Fill me with your wisdom and your truth so I can be free and I can be full of your life and your peace and your joy. I declare that your word is the word of God and the final authority for my life. I pray this in your name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. I'm going to pray for us this morning because I love there's a verse at the end of Hebrews that says something like this. It says, and may God work in us what is pleasing to him. And I, I don't know about you, but even though I know some of the right things to do, I need help to do them. And I want to pray that God would give you an appetite for his word, that God would help us, um, that he would work in us what is pleasing to him, but what also we, we need to do, that God would give us an appetite for his word. And God has recently, uh, uh, you know, caused me to have a stronger appetite for his word, and it is awesome. And I want to pray that prayer upon you because this is not just something that you ought to do. It's not something that you should do. Uh, just you should do. It's not just because I'm challenging to, you to do it, but it is life to you. And I pray that God would give you such an appetite for his truth and his word because when you get into it, when you start to chew on it and dive into it and meditate on it, it changes your life. It literally changes the quality of your life and fills you with more peace and more wisdom and more grace and you will, you will just, you'll just blossom. You'll blossom. And I pray, that's my prayer for you is that you just blossom in the Lord. And it's all right here. If you allow God some space in your life, if you open your heart to him every day. So I just want to pray that prayer over you, okay? Because I need help at times to do what I already know I ought to do. And I just pray that God would just stir that up in all of us. So God, I just pray just an appetite. God, give us an appetite for your word. Let us just come alive. Give us that taste for you, for the true presence of you, God, in our lives, your spirit and your word. I just pray for each one here, Lord, that has a desire to know you more, has a desire to follow you, has a desire to take on these challenges, but they're, they're concerned that they don't know if they'll be able to stick with it, or they don't know if they can do it. But Lord, your Bible, your word says to us that you will work into us what is pleasing to you. And so I think that we're not alone in this, that God, Holy Spirit, just come alongside of us. You are our helper. You are our counselor. So Come alongside of us and help us put this habit into our lives. Help us uh, make space for this. Remind us, draw us into your word, that your word will come alive upon us. And this week, Lord, as we meditate on Colossians 3.16, that, that uh, you know, letting the, the word of Christ dwell in us richly. I pray that we don't just uh, think about those words, but Lord, that your word actually happens upon us and that your word really is dwelling in us richly. And our lives are changed because of it. That you would literally fill us with more of your wisdom and your peace and your grace, your love and your joy and your patience and your kindness, your goodness, your gentleness, self-control, all these things that we need. May we see a tangible difference in our life this week as we give ourselves to your word. So Lord, I pray this blessing upon each one here today, Lord, in Jesus' name. And may you go before us this week and continue to order our steps for your glory. Thank you, Lord, as we were talking about at communion, that you are already there. You already intersect us at every point, at every need. You're already there. You're for us. You're not against us. Everything that we need for life and for godliness is found in you at all times, everywhere, 
and anywhere, all the time and anytime. Thank you that you're always with us. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Well, facing the wall over here. All right. I like move this way. All right. I'm glad I didn't go that way. I want to bless you guys before you go, okay? And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in his name. Amen. Amen. Have a great day. Thank you, Lord.